Our scripture reading for today comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel with a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Man, pretty exciting morning already. And it's only 9.20, so this is a good sign. <laughs> All right, let's pray, and then we're going to spend some time reflecting on this passage from Luke chapter 2. Father, thank you so much for all of the ways in which you have blessed this church community through kids, just simply the blessing it is to have kids in our lives and a part of our church for the gift that they gave us this morning, the ability to see Christmas through their eyes for a few moments. Would you please allow them to continue to teach us how to have faith like a child and how to see things new and fresh we may have been through many Christmases, but there's something about seeing it through the eyes of a kid. So again, allow that to continue to speak to us. Thank you for the gift of creativity and art and expression and all the different gifts that are a part of our church in that way and for the way that they helped lead us and speak to us last night. May we continue to steward those gifts well. And then God, this morning, would you speak to us through this text, this word that is probably familiar to us, whether we're familiar to church or not, we've probably heard this. We know about the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus, but again, make it new to us. Make it fresh for us. Help us to see it in a new way this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so our text is Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. If you have your Bible or your phone open to that, keep it open because we'll get into that really quickly. But before we start, I want to begin with this. Okay, a couple weeks ago, Right before Thanksgiving, in preparation for the Advent season, Pope Francis was talking about how we should be preparing ourselves for the coming Advent season. And his sermon about Advent got a lot of attention. I don't know if you guys heard or saw what he had to say. But essentially, the big quote that got passed around was this. In his sermon, he said this, There will be lights, there will be parties, bright trees, even nativity scenes, all decked out while the world continues to wage war, and then this is sort of the money part of the quote. He said that in a world with so much suffering, celebrating Christmas is a charade. Celebrating Christmas is a charade. Now, there are a lot of things about Pope Francis that I really love. I actually really admire this pope. This is not sort of an anti-Catholic 
speech or to begin our time together this morning. But on this point, I have to disagree with him to a certain degree, even though I really do believe God is using him to speak to the church, the capital C church, in a lot of different ways. I have to disagree with him here. Now, on the one hand, I agree with him in the sense that if we approach the holidays, if we approach the Christmas season as a way to escape and numb our pain, as a way to sort of put some walls and barriers between us and the pain and suffering that is going on in our world, if if Christmas is just a quest for the ugliest sweater, the best eggnog, the most awesome party, the perfect gift, then yeah, we do make a mockery of the holiday season. We do turn it into a charade. However, however, one of the great marks of a deep wisdom of an authentic spirituality is the ability to know and experience joy even in the midst of tragedy and suffering. So I think there's a question that we need to sit with here about why do we celebrate, especially during a time in sort of human history when it feels like there is so much to mourn. But I think there's an even deeper question, sort of a question behind the question there, and it's a big one. But I think it has to do with what is really true about the universe. I think the question is, in the end, does good really triumph over evil? Does good really triumph over evil? So to begin answering that question, let's spend some time thinking about this passage in Luke chapter 2. We begin in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, we heard bits and pieces of this in the kids' program, but what comes before this, the first seven verses in chapter 2, is the story of Jesus' birth. And in those seven verses, we're told that the most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire, has decided that he wants to count all of the people in his empire. I guess he didn't have enough to do. (laughs) So what this means is that everyone, which really means male heads of households have to go to their hometown if they're not already living there and register in order to be counted. And then, of course, counting always helps with taxes, right? So there are some taxes to be paid. So Joseph, who is Jesus's earthly father, the husband of Mary, who is very pregnant with Jesus at the time of this story, Joseph has to travel from Nazareth, his home, to Bethlehem, his place of birth. Bethlehem is sort of a backwater, small town in first century Palestine, but it has a very rich history, mostly because it was the hometown of King David. In the Jewish mindset, in the sort of cultural imagination of the people of Israel, King David was sort of the ultimate king in their story. So Joseph and Mary head to Bethlehem. However, they forgot to use Hotels.com or whatever app was available at the time to book a room. So they get there. There are no rooms for them. And of course, again, those of us who are familiar with the story know they end up in the garage, essentially, in a barn with the animals, giving birth there. Verse 7 of chapter 2, she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Baby Jesus spends his first night on earth, not in a maternity ward, not in a posh hotel, outside of an inn, in a manger, which is a feeding bucket for animals. 
So there's the sort of quick and dirty background on today's story. So when we read in verse 8, in the same region, we're talking about Bethlehem. Again, the home of Joseph, the home of Israel's greatest king. And we're talking about a place near this barn in this manger where Jesus was born. So this brings us to the shepherds. We're going to spend some time this morning thinking about these shepherds. Being a shepherd was a tough job. It was a dirty job. It was a a 24-hour-a-day job. But it was also an important job, too. Jewish society was built on this religious system that demanded the sacrificing of animals. In particular, lambs and goats. Kill a lamb or a goat to absolve yourself of wrongdoing, to restore right relationship between yourself and God and others. So, the shepherds are in charge of watching over the sacrifices. Which, you might think, being such an important job would lead to a sort of level of honor and prestige, but it was actually exactly the opposite. Shepherds were considered shifty, dirty, and untrustworthy. It's the kind of thing where if something went missing, you lost your wallet, your bike got stolen, must have been those shepherds. The shepherd's word was considered so unreliable they weren't even allowed to testify in court. Now, I want us to kind of use our imagination for a moment this morning. I really want to put ourselves in the place of these shepherds. What was it like to be one of them? What was it like to be one of these shepherds? Most of your life would have been spent outdoors in all the elements, in the sun and the wind and the rain. Imagine that this morning quite easily. (laughs) The cold, the heat, the dust, poop, and mud, and sweat, and blood with very little shade and no aloe vera. (laughs) This was a rough existence. Every day was more or less the same. You'd have a very fitful night of sleep. Fitful because you did not want to fall asleep for too long, lest a predator sneak in and kill some of your flock. After a fitful night of sleep, you wake up and you start the very long process of watering and feeding your animals. You probably had to round the whole flock up and begin looking for the next spot, the next place to graze, the next place to get water and nourishment. You spent very little time around other people, very little time in town. When you did go there, people looked at you weird, went to the other side of the street, clutched their purse a little bit tighter, Rich people buy your lambs so they can celebrate festivals and feel better about themselves. You've probably been profiled and accused of stealing something. You've probably stolen something to feed yourself or to feed your sheep. And the moment that you look forward to the most is that rare occasion when you actually can get together with some other shepherds, maybe sit around a campfire, drink a few beers, and tell some stories. It's probably what you were doing on this particular night. Deep in your bones, you live with this psychological reality of being out. Even though you're economically an intimate part of the religious system, you feel very disconnected from faith and religion and church and God. And yet, and yet you are a part of this culture, this system It's just kind of part of who you are. And so you know that God has not spoken clearly to anyone in about 500 years. 
And you sit with that silence. That silence is buried deep in your soul. You're well acquainted with waiting and longing and hoping for something better. You feel like you don't know much, but if you do know one thing, it's this. If God were to show up, if God were to speak again, the absolute last place he would go is to this God-forsaken corner of Palestine, to this motley crew of nobodies. No way in a million years is God going to show up here. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Do you feel that? Can you sense that? Great fear. Again, no reason for them to expect God to show up at that particular moment in that particular place. But he does, and they freak out. How does God respond to them? He says through this angel, fear not. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Let's break that down. First, God says, fear not. This is the most often repeated command in Scripture. Why not be afraid? Well, I have good news for you. Good news that will bring great joy. And guess what? This good news is for all the people. Not some of the people, not the cool people, not the important people, not the most holy people. This is for all the people. What's the good news? Verse 11, unto you. Think about that for a moment. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Hear that language for a moment. City of David. Savior, Lord, Christ, which, by the way, is not Jesus' last name. <laughs> a little misconception there. Christ is a title that means Messiah. Let me say that again. City of David, Savior, Christ, Lord. We've spent the last two weeks as we've been in this Advent series in the book of Isaiah in chapter 9, this kind of classic Christmas Advent text, these words from Isaiah would have been deep in their cultural imagination. These words would have been embedded in their memory. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government's and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the good news. This is the announcement of a new kind of leader. Everything that you were hoping for. Finally here, a good king, a better way to live. All that longing and waiting, it's over He's here, just over that hill right now. Go check it out unto you, shepherds. This child has been born. So the angels sing a song, and then they disappear, and then we read this. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, 
which the Lord has made known to us. And so they went with haste. They booked it. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So, how does this story help us respond to the tension of celebrating Christmas? Again, in a world filled with so much pain and suffering, why do we celebrate? I think there's at least three things that we can reflect on here. So first, I'm at that stage of life where it seems like everybody is having a baby. Anybody else feel like they're in that stage of life? On Thursday, a really good couple friend of Amy and I who have been struggling with infertility for a long time gave birth to their first daughter. On Friday, my sister gave birth to a son, her fifth My other sister is due in March with her first child, a little girl. Again, it seems like every time I turn around, every time I look at Facebook, somebody is having a baby. I've been through the process twice now, and I can say this. It is awesome. It is awesome to hold your newborn daughter, your newborn son in your arms seconds after they come into this world. It's just unbelievable universe altering. I don't even really have words to describe what that moment is like. And when that happens, you want to tell people about it. So you text and you call and you post pictures because you want everyone to know. And even though you want everyone to know, who do you start with? Start with your family, start with your close friends. Who does God share the good news of the birth of his son with first. Shepherds. This unreliable, untrustworthy, scared out of their minds, bunch of outcasts. Why does God go to the shepherds first? Why does God go to the shepherds first? I think it's because if this is not good news for them... It's not really good news. This is not good news for them. It's not really good news. The angel says, hey, this good news is going to be for all the people. And that's not just some nice thing that he sort of threw into the end of that sentence to tie it all together. That's really true. And we know this. One way that we know this is the very fact that the shepherds are the first audience the first ones to hear about the good news of the birth of Jesus. Because let me say it again, if this is not good news for them, for the outcast, for the despised, for the overlooked, it's not really good news. This is at least one reason I think why we can, why we must celebrate the birth of Jesus. Because this good news is for everyone. And if we don't celebrate it, who will? This good news is not just for some people. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for people who look and talk and think like us. It is for everyone, for all the people, which is big, right? (laughs) 
Something this big demands to be celebrated. So a question for us, a challenge for us is this. Do we limit what God has promised for all? Do we limit what God has promised for all? And what does God promise? We need to spend some time with a really good, old-fashioned Christian theological word, and that is the word grace. We love talking about grace, right? We love verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, check this out. In the Greek, the word grace is related to a couple of other words. Grace in the Greek is the word charis. Charis. Again, closely related to two other words. One of those words is the word gift, which shows up in this Ephesians 2 passage. Gift is the Greek word charisma, where we get charisma from. Gift, of course, is not something that we earn or something that we deserve. It's simply something that we receive because someone, the giver, wants to give it to us. Part of what is so beautiful to me about the story of the shepherds is that this very same despised group of people who guarded and kept watch over the sacrificial animals of the old system are the first who are invited to keep watch over the sacrificial savior of the new system, a grace system. Again, they embody this. They are a living example of this. They're not first to the good news. They're not first to see this savior of the world because they are worthy, because they earn this opportunity. It's simply a gift, an act of grace, a foreshadowing of the ultimate act of grace that was Jesus' undeserved death in our place. Foreshadowing of his death and also his resurrection, which gifts us with abundant life today, eternal life after we die, totally unearned in any way. So why do we celebrate? We celebrate this grace, this gift, which leads us to a second question, a second challenge. Have you experienced that grace in your life? The totally unearned love and favor of God. Okay, final thought about celebration. I said that grace is related to a couple of other words in the Greek. Charis and charisma share the same root as the word kara, which we translate into English as joy. Charisma, charis, kara, gift, grace, joy. A couple of summers ago, I had the opportunity to go to a conference called the World Domination Summit. That's a real thing. <laughs> the World Domination Summit is this conference for entrepreneurs and creatives. It's for people who don't want to work for the man anymore. It's kind of the idea there. For anyone who's trying to live, this is their tagline, a remarkable life in a conventional world. Now that I've got you thinking about the World Domination Summit, <laughs> we're going to talk about happiness. One of the speakers at the conference was Gretchen Rubin, who wrote a book called The Happiness Project, and uh, really interesting stuff. And so she began her talk by saying this, the key to happiness is, in her work and research, self-knowledge. 
Only when we know ourselves and are comfortable with ourselves can we be truly happy. So she did this really interesting thing. She asked us four questions that were supposed to help us sort of figure out and get more in touch with who we are. And these are the four questions. First, who do you envy? Second is, what do you lie about? Third is, what did you do for fun when you were 10? And then the fourth is, how do you handle temptation? Those are interesting questions, right? Not really what I was expecting her to say in that talk. Now, it was a good talk, but it left me really thinking about this whole idea of happiness. The dictionary definition of happiness is this, to be characterized by good fortune or by good luck or by fortune. Based on that definition, happiness makes me feel very helpless. There's a huge market for Gretchen Rubin's work because happiness is so fleeting. Most people, when they are surveyed, will say, I wish I was more happy. Happiness is not something that we carry with us. It is the byproduct of our circumstances. But joy, this word so intimately connected to grace and gifts, joy is so different. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. If happiness is about the journey inside of ourselves, getting to know me better, then joy is about the journey outside of ourselves. Lewis goes on to say, there is no doubt that joy was a desire, but a desire is turned not to itself, but to its object. Not only that, it owes all its character to its object. Joy is not found in itself. It has a source. It has an object. And the only true joy that we will find can be found ultimately, its object, is in this baby Jesus. This baby born in an animal feeding bucket in the back country of Palestine in the first century, who would grow up and of course become the savior of the world. I will bring this down to our final thought here, so hang with me. <laughs> Sometimes we hold joy in tension with happiness, there's sort of this like joy versus happiness thing. Other times we hold joy in tension with sadness, sort of like the opposite. Even scripture does this at some level. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones, Proverbs 17, 22. Some of us here this morning are more dried bones than joyful hearts, if we're being honest. And there's something about this time of the year, about the holiday season, that kind of brings up some of that pain, right? Maybe we're remembering the loss of a loved one. Maybe we're lamenting the brokenness of a relationship or a family bond. Maybe we're just more aware of the difficulty we have in making ends meet financially. Maybe it's that the future seems really uncertain and scary. Maybe it is simply the fact that it looks like our world is totally unraveling right before our eyes. Again, some of us are more dried bones than joyful hearts. And there's a popular wisdom, even a popular theology out there that says just try harder, just pray a little bit more, just sort of buck up, and you'll feel better. You'll get through it. 
And again, I think there's a lot of us here this morning that know that doesn't really work that way, right? Because again, it's circumstantial. It's not tied or grounded to a reality beyond ourselves, and it's ultimately a misunderstanding of what joy really is. Here is the final gift of the story of the shepherds. The opposite of joy is not sadness, it's fear. The opposite of joy is not sadness, it's fear. Nothing will rob you of your joy more quickly than fear. But here's the good news. When joy comes, fear has to go. When joy comes, fear has to go. Again, the most often repeated command in Scripture is fear not, which is not just an invitation to be more courageous. It is an invitation to joy because when joy comes, fear has to go. You see, we have nothing to fear. Joy is born out of a trust that it will be okay. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in 10 years, maybe not ever in your lifetime, but it will one day be okay. He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So why do we celebrate we celebrate because we know how the story ends, and it's a good ending. We can celebrate because no matter how bleak things look, no matter how upside down and messed up our world might seem, death and suffering are not the last words. So joy comes through knowing the Jesus who was born in a manger, Joy comes because in the end, this baby in this manger in Bethlehem wins. That baby, not some random lamb from a shepherd's flock, that baby will grow up and hang on a cross and die, but three days later will conquer death so that we may have life and have it abundantly. So let me ask you this, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? My encouragement to you this Christmas season is to celebrate celebrate this baby celebrate christmas embrace the joy of his birth and his death and his resurrection because when joy comes fear has to go and then like the shepherds when that joy comes share it because our world desperately needs more joy let's pray Father God, thank you so much for the good news of Jesus. The good news that because he has come in the form of a baby, later in the form of a man, and walked among us and lived among us and taught and healed and ultimately laid his life down, died a death in our place, all to restore relationship between us and you. Thank you for this good news. So, Father, this morning, may we know that no matter how difficult things might be in our own lives, no matter how mad the world may seem to be at any given moment, there is this true line running through all of it that in the end, baby wins. 
And so, God, may we celebrate that, and as we celebrate and enter into that joy, may our fear begin to disappear. Because we know, again, how the story ends, and it is a good ending. So no matter what people bring with them into this room this morning, God, I pray that each and every one of us would know the grace that brings the ultimate joy, only sort of true joy that lasts through all the ups and downs of life. May we know and have a real relationship with this Jesus. Pray all this in your name. Amen.